0: We're going to read from Mark chapter 11, which is God's word to us this morning. Um, It is important to say that in Village, we do believe that the Bible is God's word. This is God's active and living word speaking to us. So if you're a Christian this morning, what you're about to hear is God speaking to you this morning. Um, So after I read it, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And at home, wherever you are, you say, uh, thanks be to God. Let's hear what God has to say to us this morning from Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 1. 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately." And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, I'm just going to pray for us uh, before John comes and uh, brings the word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your word. We thank you that that you haven't left us uh, without a family, but you also haven't left us without instruction, um, that you communicate to us constantly through your word. Um, Father, this is more than just an ancient text that we've read this morning, but this is you, uh, by your Holy Spirit, speaking to us, your children, this morning. Lord, give us ears to hear. Lord, let this message not fall on deaf ears this morning. May we be changed by what we hear. Uncover the sin in our lives. Lead us into action to repent and be changed to be more like Jesus and to bring your gospel to the world around us. Father, we pray for John as he uh, brings this message to us this morning. Uh, Holy Spirit, empower him, be the wind in his sails, uh, speak through him. Father, I pray this morning that John would decrease so that Jesus would increase, um, Heavenly Father, give us such a huge vision of Jesus this morning that we have no option but to fall down and worship him and to change our lives according to him. Uh, Lord, we love you, and we can't wait to hear what you have to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Cool. Good morning. Hopefully you have your Bibles open already to that passage, the Gospel of Mark. Um, if you've been following along with our weekly Lent devotionals, um, you'll know we started those uh, way, way back at the end of February, really, um, by looking at that, that famous passage where Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And um, through, those, through Lent, through those devotionals, we've been uh, following Jesus, kind of journeying with him. And we've been observing uh, these interactions that he's had with folks along the way. And uh, we are finally here with him as he's about to enter into Jerusalem, the city that he's been journeying towards. Um, actually, if you're, if you're in Mark's gospel, go ahead and uh, back up to the very beginning of of, of his book, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. These, like, we one-offs are, can be a bit tricky um, when you just kind of Plop into the middle of a book. Um, it's really important today for us to understand what Mark's uh, main kind of message is in his gospel. What exactly is he, is he trying to tell us? What's the main point of his book? It's, it's helpful when you're reading those four gospels to know what each of the gospel writers are trying to, to tell us about Jesus in their respective books. So don't, don't think of the gospels as biographies of Jesus. Um, that's not really what they're intended to be. If they were, uh, they're probably not <laughs> very good ones. They are they are um, truthful, they are historical, but they're not trying to be biographical in a sense. Um, if they were, you'd expect them to be very, very similar, um, but they're not identical. Um, some writers choose to include certain events that others don't include in there. Some may mention a certain event kind of briefly, while others might really lean in and look at it very, very closely. And that's okay, because instead of trying to give a detailed um, picture of the life of Christ, what the writers are trying to do is they're trying to tell us something very specific about Jesus. And Mark makes his focus of his book crystal clear uh, in his opening sentence. So Mark 1.1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So that's it. That's, that's Mark's focus. He begins by saying, This is the beginning of this gospel, this, this revelation or this teaching about Jesus. And he calls him the Christ, the Son of God. So that's Mark's overarching theme for his entire gospel. That's what he's trying to get across to his readers, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's, he's the, the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior, who is the Son of God. Um, that's what he's writing to show us. Um, it's helpful to think of Mark's gospel really as a play with three different acts. So Act 1 is really from chapter 1 to chapter 8, 26, um, the the first act is set in and around Galilee, and, and in that act, Mark is really, he's trying to answer that question, who is Jesus? And, and he answers that question really by demonstrating that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So he, he demonstrates that by including a lot of miracles. So you have Jesus uh, exercising demons, healing the sick. He is uh, commanding uh, storms to stop with his words. He's, he's walking on the sea. Uh, he's feeding groups of thousands of people with essentially a happy meal. He's, he's raising people from the dead. So Mark is demonstrating in that section that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Act 2 is really from chapter 8 verse 27 to the end of chapter 10. And the setting moves away from Galilee, more into the Gentile regions, and he moves on from demonstrating who Jesus is to clarifying who he is. So that section opens up with that conversation between Jesus and his disciples, where he asks them, who do people say I am? So again, he's trying to answer the question, who is Jesus? And his disciples say, well, people think you're John the Baptist, or some say you're Elijah, or some say you're one of the prophets. And then he asks them, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And he says, don't tell anyone just yet. <laughs> and so he's, he's clarifying in that section who he is. He foretells his death and his rexure- resurrection a couple times. He, he, he's clarifying to his disciples what it means to be a follower of him. Um, he's talking a lot about faith and, and following him in that section. And then Act 3 uh, is really, we're going to look at the beginning of that today. It's from chapter 11 to the end. And the setting moves to Jerusalem. Um, So he's demonstrated that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's moved on to clarify what he means by that. And in this section, he's proving it to be true. He's demonstrating, clarifying, and proving that Jesus himself has this claim that he is the Son of God, the Christ Christ. And here, Mark is proving it to be true. Um, when you're reading the Gospels, uh, it's important to... You're meant to read them backwards. So you're meant to, to read them in light of how they end. Um, my wife, Jenny, does this. She, uh, she does this with books and movies, and it winds me up. <laughs> if, if Jenny gets a, a new book, she'll actually read the last chapter first, or she'll read the last couple of paragraphs uh, first to see how it ends, and then she'll go back and start from the beginning. Uh, or if we're watching a movie or we have a new series, she'll have it up on Wikipedia just to see how it ends first because she hates not knowing. She, she's just she's too nervous to watching it. Um, I say you're completely ruining the story. But that's actually a good technique when you're reading the Bible. Um, it, it's meant to be read backwards. It's, what makes sense of the whole thing is to read it in light of Jesus' death and resurrection. And that is is exactly what this last act of Mark is all about. So I encourage you to pay close attention. Um, notice about a third of the entire Gospel of Mark is about Holy Week. Um, there's, there's 16 chapters. It's not a long book. And at chapters 11 to the end pretty much cover the final week of the life of Christ, um, which is pretty crazy, isn't it? This is Jesus' 33-ish at the time of his death, resurrection, and ascension. Mark has three decades of this person's life to to tell us about, and he spends a third of his book talking about one week of his life. Um, All four of the gospel writers do this to varying degrees. They all zoom in and and slow down on this last week. John spends half of his whole book about this on this last week. Week, So you don't really have to be a Bible scholar to get it. Um, you can, anyone can read these books and pretty easily go, well, it seems like the last week of his life is pretty important. It's almost as if the main thing Jesus came to do was to die. And Mark would say, bravo, you, you get it. You get what I'm trying to tell you. Um, and, and so as we enter into Holy Week, uh, let's slow down. And we're going to look at this opening scene where Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem. I'm going to to read it one more time because it's, it's only 11 verses. So chapter 11, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there were saying to them, what are you doing untying this colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Remember Mark's big idea. This is what he's trying to tell us, is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Keep that in your minds. And, and when you read this text, um, what we see is that Jesus understands this. Jesus, himself, he believes himself to be the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus gets it. We also see that the crowds that are with him kind of get it. And then the rest of the city don't really at all. So Jesus gets it. The crowds that are with him kind of get it, and everyone else couldn't really care less. So let let me explain why that's true by looking at our text. Um, Firstly, Jesus gets it. He believes himself to be the Messiah, uh, the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, And the way Mark shows us this is really by highlighting in the first six verses the very deliberate actions of Jesus concerning the way he wants to enter into Jerusalem, Now, if this is the time of the Passover, um, this is this incredibly important Jewish festival where where Jews from all over would make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, it was customary really for the final stage to be completed by foot. Um, But Jesus very deliberately chooses to enter in another way. And Mark really wants to show us that Jesus believes himself to be the Christ because of the way the, the way he enters has immense messianic significance. In other words, the way Jesus himself is arranging his entry into Jerusalem, the way he chooses to come in is exactly the way the Old Testament prophets said the Messiah would enter in. Um, so let's look at it. Verse one, uh, when they came to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. So as we saw much earlier, Jesus had set his face towards Jerusalem. This was his destination. This is where he has been uh, kind of journeying towards. And, and he's very deliberately chosen his route. And he's decided to enter in from the east, from the Mount of Olives. Um, and it's important for us to understand that in the Old Testament, the Mount of Olives is designated as this place of uh, future revelation of God's glory. And, and the rabbis associated this place uh, with the coming of the Messiah, particularly because of a prophecy found in Zechariah 14, and I'm going to reference a lot of kind of Old Testament passages. And if you want to write them down uh, and you can go back and look at them later, um, that'd be great. Um, that prophecy is Zechariah 14:1-9, which it describes this future time when the Lord will go to battle for His people, and it says this. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall split in two from east to west. Uh, Now the splitting of the earth wouldn't happen until Good Friday, but they expected the Messiah to come by way of the Mount of Olives, and that's precisely what Jesus chooses to do. Let's keep reading. Um, They drew near to Jerusalem, Bethphage, Bethany, the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you. Immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord has need of it. We'll send it back immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at that door outside the street and they untied it. Some of those were standing there, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let him go. Um, Now, in these 11 verses describing Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, why does Mark spend six of those verses talking about this donkey, talking about this, this colt, this young donkey? Why does he so obviously want us to see that Jesus is choosing to arrive not by foot, but instead is arranging his arrival by way of riding on this colt. Well, it's because this colt has even more messianic significance. Jesus is is clearly intending to conform his entry to these messianic prophecies. Um, The most clear one is Zechariah 9.9, this text about the coming king of Zion. Um, It says, "'Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion!' Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus knows his Bible. He knows the scripture. He he knows that uh, that the Messiah arrives humbly and mounted on a colt. And so he says, that's exactly what I'm going to do. He's, he's clearly uh, arranging this very specifically. And um, I, I think sometimes because we just don't know uh, our Bibles as well as, as these people did, as well as Jesus did, we sometimes read this and go, wow, look, look at how these, these prophecies all just kind of magically line up. This prophecy that was made thousands of years before just happened to come true for Jesus. Jesus knew the scriptures. He knew how the Messiah would come, so he decides, this is how I will enter in. He's very deliberately arranging these circumstances because he believes himself to be the Christ. And I've always kind of read this passage as another example of Jesus' divinity. Wow, he just knew exactly where the cult would be. He knew that it would be where it would be tied up uh, he knew uh, what to tell uh, these people standing around. Maybe it's some kind of, you know, Jedi mind trick. This is not the donkey you're looking for. Um, maybe maybe he's, he just supernaturally arranges all of this because he's God. Um, and maybe that is true. Or he could have just arranged this beforehand. If this, is, if this is Bethany, where he sends his disciples to get his cult, he's, he's very familiar with Bethany. This is where his friends, some of his best friends live. Mary, Martha, Lazarus. This is where he, he, he raises Lazarus from the dead. He's been here. Could he not have, have prearranged this with the owner of the cult? Either way, he's very deliberate with how he's choosing to enter into Jerusalem. Because he knows the Messiah, the king comes humbly and mounted on a colt. So this is precisely what he does. Um, I, want, I want you to notice the, the detail that Mark gives here as well. Um, anytime you're reading your, your Bibles, it's, uh, it's helpful to, to look out for repetitive words or, or phrases. Um, usually that's a, a good sign that there's, there's something important we're meant to, to pick up on. Uh, the, the author's usually trying to tell us something with these repetitive things. And, and Mark is doing that here. He keeps repeating the fact that this donkey is tied and it's untied. You see how, how often he, you're going to go, His donkey is tied, untied. If they say, it, why are you untying it? Untie it. It's just over and over again. He clearly wants us to see something with this colt being tied and untied. And that's, again, because there's very clear messianic significance to a tied colt or donkey. Um, he, he's pointing us back to Genesis 49, where, where Jacob, Israel, is on his deathbed. And he, and he gathers his 12 sons to, to bless them. And, and, and these, these 12 sons who are going to be the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And he gets to Judah. And he says to Judah, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. There's this, this, this royal dynasty that he's, he's kind of blessing this Judah and his family with. And then he, he refers to Judah as a lion. So, so remember, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's very clear kind of messianic significance here. And then he tells him, The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until the tribe comes to him. And to him shall be then obedience of all the peoples. And then he says, binding the foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. So again, there's this very clear messianic prophecy. He's talking about this, this, this royal family line of, of Judah's tribe, this, this lion from the tribe of Judah. And he mentions this tied up colt Mark is, is wanting to point us to this deep messianic significance of this prophecy. Um, there's also another fact that he, he, he points out very clearly that this cult has not been ridden on. And that's significant because there's, there's an ancient provision uh, that an animal devoted to a, for a sacred purpose must be one that hasn't been put to ordinary use. Find that in Numbers 19 in Deuteronomy 21, 1 Samuel 6. So <laughs> there's this cult that's tied up and it has not been ridden on because it's set aside for a sacred purpose. Mark wants us to see the, the profound messianic significance of Jesus' deliberate actions here. He wants to make it absolutely clear that Jesus believes himself to be the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus gets it. What about the crowds? Um, We see they kind of get it, but not fully. Uh, Keep reading from verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the ground, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went out uh, went before, and those who followed were were shouting, "'Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord!'' Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So, who are these people, firstly? Um, I, I'm sure you've been taught, before, heard, heard it taught before. I, myself, have taught this before. Uh, kind of taught on the fickleness of this crowd, that they can shout Hosanna one day and then crucify him a few days later. Look how quickly we all turn away. Um, there, there's not really anything in these gospel texts that, that lead us to believe that this is the same crowd. Um, if anything, there's more to go on that the, the Palm Sunday Hosanna crowd is is different from the, the Good Friday Crucify Him crowd. Uh, now, now, can we ourselves relate to both crowds? Absolutely. And I think that's, that's probably good and okay to do. Um, but I think it's important to stick closely to the text. The, the excited throng on, on, on Palm Sunday was really filled with Galilean pilgrims and the larger crowd of Jesus' disciples. So when we think of Jesus' disciples, we often just think of the 12, don't we? Um, which is usually okay. They, are, they have a significant role. But uh, you see in the Gospels that there's a larger crowd in and, and Luke Chapter 10, we read Jesus sending out 72 others. You get to Acts chapter 1, and there's 120 people uh, waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus certainly has uh, a larger group of followers who probably had varying degrees of interest in who he was. And so it's this group of pilgrims and disciples that are kind of excitedly escorting Jesus into Jerusalem. And what we see them doing shows us that they kind of get who Jesus is, but not fully. There's a couple things Mark points out that show us this. Uh, firstly, we see them spreading their cloaks on the ground. These, these leafy branches, the other uh, writers will identify them as palm branches. Um, this shows us that they kind of get it. Um, they, they believe that, that Jesus has come to Jerusalem in, in a fulfillment of a prophetic mission, um, possibly even uh, some kind of messianic fulfillment, and they are treating him with appropriate honor in that way. So they're, they're spreading their cloaks, their, 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 their branches before Jesus. It's really meant to mirror this royal ceremonious welcome of a king. We see this exact same thing in, with the inauguration of King Jehu in Second Kings chapter 9, uh, verse 13, uh, that says, they hurried and took their cloaks, spread them under him on the bare steps, and they blew their trumpets and shouted, King, uh, Jehu is king, mirrors what they're, what's happening here. So they, they get that Jesus' arrival is significant, that they're excited about it. They're even uh, welcoming him in as a king. Yet, we also see that they don't fully understand. Verse 9, and those who went before and those who followed after were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. I've always read that Hosanna section as well. There it is they 're obviously praising Jesus as he enters in, which means they get it right that they understand that that this is the the Messiah arriving partly is that that is true, but I think when you take a closer look at what they are saying you see there 's also there 's truth in what they are saying, but there 's also some confusion in their words which show us that they don 't fully get it, and what they are what they are actually reciting there are uh, Is a Hallel song. Um, these, as the the pilgrims would would enter into Jerusalem, they'd sing these Hallel psalms. We you actually find them in Psalm one thirteen to Psalm one eighteen. These Hallelujah songs, songs of thanksgiving and praise, and they'd actually sing them uh, responsively to each other. So so group A would recite one line, group B would sing the next line. Group B would sing the next line, and then group A would go back and forth, just like our liturgy that we do. And, and, and what they are singing here, what we get here, is this small section of Psalm 118, verses 25 to 26. They're singing this back and forth. So it goes like this, Psalm 118, verses 25 to 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So, so this word Hosanna that they're shouting, it's a, it's a transliteration of verse 25, which, which literally means, save us, we pray. Save us now. That's what they're singing here. And when they sing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, it's not necessarily directed at Jesus. It's, it's possibly directed at the pilgrims. Blessed are those who, who come in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. It's this cry for blessing, it's this cry for salvation. But then they add in a line that isn't in Psalm 118 and they say, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Um, and this shows us that they kind of get it, but not really. Because when you read the Gospels, Jesus never preached the coming of the kingdom of David. He preached the coming of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, are they wrong? No, not necessarily. So remember in Advent, we we're, we're spent weeks in, in Isaiah 9, which is talking about the Messiah and what he would do. And it says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So there's this, this, this yearning for this, this kingdom of David to be established forever, this kingdom of peace and righteousness. So will the Messiah come and establish this kingdom of David forevermore? Yes, but that's not what Jesus emphasizes. He, he preaches the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. So they 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 kind of get it, who he is, but their expectations are off. Because what we what what are they expecting the Messiah to do? They're expecting him to march into Jerusalem, to defeat their oppressors, and to establish the kingdom in Jerusalem. You even see that same misunderstanding all through the Gospels in his in the Twelve Disciples. They're constantly thinking of an earthly kingdom. They can't get it through. Uh, they, they they don't fully understand what he's talking about. Jesus, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus, is like oh, you don't understand. Or, or Peter, when when Jesus is telling his disciples, he makes it really clear. He's like, I'm going to suffer and die. <laughs> and Peter like takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. <laughs> Peter rebuking Jesus says, Jesus, be quiet. Like that's not going to happen. You're gonna you're the Messiah. You're the one who's going to establish this kingdom forever. He didn't understand. Or at the transfiguration, Jesus, he sees Jesus in all of his glory. And what does Peter do? Let's make some tents. This is it. Let's hunker down and do this thing. They didn't fully get it. They certainly didn't understand what Jesus was coming into Jerusalem to do. Now, if you you read Psalm 118, if you keep reading that song that they were singing, you'd get the answer of what Jesus was going to do. Because the very next line of that psalm says, the Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. And that is exactly what Jesus has come to do. He will be the sacrifice bound to the altar. You see, they got it, but not really. This is a king who has come, but it's a king who has come to die. They, they, they didn't fully understand that this king would also, as we've been learning in, in Hebrews, be a priest. And he would also be the, the sacrifice that is offered. Their expectations are off. Um, the other reason we can see that they don't really get it it's pretty plainly because the, the, we see the crowd dissipates. <laughs> we get to verse 11, and this section ends kind of anticlimactically, doesn't it? Look at where this grand entry leads to. He enters Jerusalem. He went to the temple. It says when he looked around at everything, it was late, and he went out to Bethany with the Twelve. Where is everybody? Where are the crowds? Where are all the shouts? Where, what happened? Where'd they go? They're gone. And, and that clearly shows us that they, they really didn't understand who he was. If they truly believed and understood that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, there's no way the crowds fizzle out. There's no way. They, they would be with him to the end. But they weren't because they didn't really get it it's kind of an unexpected ending to the scene isn't it it's not what you'd expect from a section that's titled the triumphal entry the crowds fizzling out Jesus standing alone in in the temple courts it's late there's probably people cleaning up tidying up their tables counting their money Shoveling manure. Imagine this this quiet scene. Where Jesus comes in as Lord of the temple. And he calmly surveys the place. And then he goes back to Bethany with his 12 disciples. It seems a bit anticlimactic. But I think it's actually a, a beautiful piece of storytelling. Because over the next three chapters... All of the action is going to be centered in and around the temple. Um, and, and you see here that Jesus is very deliberate. Jesus has come in on a mission. If you keep reading in, in, in chapter 11, uh, one of the very next things Jesus does is he, he comes and he cleanses the temple. That, that, that famous scene where he comes in and he flips the tables of the money changers and the merchants and he accuses them of making his house a den of robbers rather than a house of prayer. I'm sure you, like me, have read that and have thought, man, Jesus kind of loses it there. He just kind of loses his temple and flips out, but that's actually not true. Jesus is very deliberate with his actions because the night before, he's calmly surveying the place. He sees what's happening, and he knows what he needs to do. And Jesus is on a mission. He's here to do battle, and he will throw the first blow. And so over the next three chapters, all the action is going to be on the temple. And what we see is by the end of the week, the temple will be torn down. This is the center of their faith, and it will become irrelevant in God's eyes. But a new center will be established, namely Jesus himself. And so verse 11 may, may seem a bit anticlimactic, but it, it's a masterful piece of storytelling. It's this, it's this calm before the storm. Mark show, continues to show us the, the deliberateness of Jesus. And we see that Jesus, he's about to press the issue big time. Have you ever noticed that after Jesus heals someone, he's always telling them not to tell anyone? And the reason he does that is because he knew his messianic time had not yet come. But now, now he's ready to let everyone in on the secret. He's about to completely interrupt business as usual. His messianic time has come, and he's going to break open his secret for all to see. Mark is saying, don't you see that Jesus has fully embraced his identity as the Christ, the Son of God? And here's why that matters. Um, It's because you'll have a hard time uh, finding a single person in Belfast that doesn't like Jesus. (laughs) No one doesn't at least like Jesus. Jesus. Listen, listen to his teachings on caring for the poor and, and loving your neighbor and, and humility. Like, what a terrible teacher. No, no, no one thinks that. Everybody likes Jesus. That might even be you this morning. I think he's a great guy. He's a great teacher. What, what, a, what a leader. But when you read Mark's gospel, you see that it's actually not an option just to like Jesus. It's not an option just to think he's a great teacher and not respond to him as Lord. The reason you can't just like him is because of who Jesus says he is. Jesus believes that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. It's not an option. C.S. Lewis uh, says this in his book in, in Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the real foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man, uh, a man who is merely a man and said this sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Here's the great lie, is that you don't necessarily have to be concerned with Jesus, or that you can be kind of concerned with Jesus. Here's the truth, though, is that there is nothing more important than what you do with Mark 1.1. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Either that's true or that's false. If If it's false, he's a madman. If it's false, then, then why are you investing any of your time with things concerning him? If it's true, then why are we not worshiping him with every bit of our lives? If we're honest, we can often be like the crowd, can't we? We can be so excited, so uh, impassioned. And then the next moment, Eh. On Sundays, we can, we can be so excited with the crowd. We can sing so loudly. You might even raise your hands a little bit. But then quickly, we can become so distracted by other things. Here's one I'm a little embarrassed to, to share. There's times even, um, I've been on our Monday prayer Zooms. Um, these, it's an hour of devotion and joining the saints in worship, in prayer. And it feels like 10 minutes because it's so sweet. It's such a blessing. It's the highlight of my week. But there are moments when I have pressed end meeting and a second later clicked up the old Netflix tab. So impassioned. And then so what else can capture my attention? What else can satisfy me? But you see, there's no option to be like the crowds here. There's no option to be indifferent when it comes to who Jesus says he is. Either he's the Christ, the Son of God, or he's a lunatic. Here's my challenge for us this week, and especially as we make our way through Holy Week, uh, is pay attention. Pay attention close attention to Jesus this week. Make it your main thing. L- look at who he says he is. Look particularly at how he proves he's, who he says he is. And as Andrew said, we're having these Holy Week devotionals, these Zooms uh, every night. So Monday to Thursday, they're going to be at 8 p.m., 20 minutes Max. Uh, someone will share a devotional. There'll be a reflection and a prayer. Pretty simple. Um, I know that sounds like a bit of a hassle. I know a lot of us are on Zoom all day long. Um, but if there's any week where it should be okay to embrace a bit of disruption in our lives, um, in our evening schedules, then it's Holy Week. L- let let this week be an opportunity to awaken yourself again to who Jesus is. What, what can you do just this week, take it, a day, take it a day at a time, to pay closer attention to who Jesus is? And then consider how you'll respond to him. How would our lives change if we truly believed That Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God? How would we decide to spend our waking moments? Where would our, our thoughts go as we lay our heads on our pillows at night? How would it change the way we parent our children? How would it change the way we interact with our friends and our neighbors? Where would you then turn to for relief in times of anxiety? Challenge is this week to pay closer attention to Jesus and who he says he is. This Christ, the Son of God, the one who came to seek and save the lost, the one who came to die in the place of sinners, the one who would suffer, who would die and then rise from the dead triumphantly. Pay close attention and see who he says he is and how he proves them to be true. Um, This kind of fickleness, I don't want to shame you this morning. I want you to see what Jesus does in your life though when you go to him, when you turn to him as the Christ, the Son of God. And, and uh, I didn't really have where that was going to go until Alan shared that call to worship. And notice the difference between these crowds. This one, who get it but kind of get it, who, who, who are praising this king but don't fully understand who he is and what he would do. The difference between that and that great multitude praising him in Revelation 7 i to read it again. It says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. It's different from this crowd. From every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living things, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. It's a different scene, isn't it? There's a different confidence in who He is, it's a different worship there. And listen, we can be fickle. We can believe, and our our belief can kind of uh, fade away a little bit. It's that prayer, I believe, help my unbelief. But you see, for those who continually go to Him, what He does in their lives, that one day we will stand before Him with such confidence, such praise and worship, this unwavering conviction of who He is, on the throne can't wait for that. but this week, I just want to encourage you to, to pay closer attention who he is and how he proves that to be true. Let's pray. And Jesus, you are king. You are Lord of all creation. And you are worthy of every praise. You deserve every praise. In Luke's account, he said, he said Jesus, you even said, if they, don't, if they don't praise, even the rocks will cry out. You will get your praise. All of creation declares your glory. And that king Humbly condescends to us, comes in riding on a donkey to serve, to suffer, and to die for us when we don't deserve that. Um, Lord, I ask you just to press that into us. Help us to understand the magnitude of what you've done for us this week. Help us to see who you are, what kind of king you are. And may that lead us to falling on our faces in worship. You are so good, Jesus. You are so kind. Thank you for your love thank you for the way you prove that love and while we were still sinners you came and you died in our place We thank you Lord that we just we, we can be yours we can be called sons and daughters because of you our king, our priest I pray for those Lord who don't yet know you Lord may they put their faith in you may they say thank you for what you've done for them so that they can be brought into the family, so that they can be Revelation 7 someday, and that great multitude from every nation and every tongue, crying out praises forever. I pray for those uh, who, whose faith is weak, Lord. Pray for us that one moment we can be hot for you, and one moment we can be so fickle. Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Thank you, Jesus, that you are faithful, that what you started in us, you will bring to completion. May we continue to come to you, continue to find our rest in you, our hope in you. Do that in us this week, Lord. Open our eyes again. Open our eyes, Lord, to who you are. Pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.